Isaiah chapter 43, verse 1. But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. This is the word of the Lord, and we say thanks be to God for his word and his revelation to us. We always begin our time together with God's word, recognizing that God is the one who initiates with us. He is the one that condescends himself down to where we are to reveal himself, to initiate, to call us into his presence and to respond with joy and praise and singing. Uh, today, let me just go over a couple of announcements um, before, we, uh, before we jump off. First, welcome. I'm so excited to see you or to be with you this morning, rather. Um, if you are here live with us, please say something in the chat now, whether that is on Facebook. Uh, we have about 10 to 15 people gathering on Facebook, and the rest of us are all over on YouTube. Uh, but if you can get on the chat there and just say hello, greet one another, welcome one another. I know many of you have already been doing that uh, during the announcement slides and things like that. It is wonderful to be together uh, as God's people in this unique time, but still nonetheless together. Uh, we praise God for the rain uh, that's finally come and, and started to clear everything out. Um, and this is, um, I don't know, I think I might be a little weird, but I am excited about the rain. Um, I think this is the right place for us when we moved up here about a year and a half ago, and, uh, and we're excited now that the, the rain has started again. So a couple of announcements. Um, one is some of you right now are watching together as, as groups. We, we kicked off our home groups about a week and a half ago, um, and basically what a home group is is a gathering of people that um, are going to get together and they're going to watch the sermon together on Sunday morning live at 10 a.m. and maybe sing a, a hymn together, or a song together. There's some more resources that are going to be coming your way for things like that. Maybe pray for one another. Uh, we recognize and we understand that being in fellowship with one another and seeing each other face-to-face -face is extremely important. It's part of who we've been wired as, the people of God. If you're interested in a home group, if, if now is the time in phase two that you're, you're interested in getting plugged in and connected with another leader, just hesi don't hesitate. Please email me directly at samuel at newhopekent.org, or you can click the link and fill out that form. Either way, it's coming straight to me, and I will work with you to connect you with a leader. And It's a little bit like a matchmaking game, and it takes, takes a minute to, uh, to find the right group. But the, the leaders will talk to you personally about what kind of precautions are being taken just so everybody is on the same page and everybody is comfortable meeting together during this time. Uh, so I really encourage you. We are also taking steps towards our first, first in-person worship service since this all began way back in March. Uh, it feels weird to say that, um, but in mid-October, and there's going to be more information coming along with that, but, but I am looking, we are looking, I've got a team together, we've, we've started to contact the volunteers and getting everything in place to make sure that we can meet in, in a safe way and begin to do that. Um, also, let me just say, whether you are a believer or not a believer, we want to pray for you. 
So I really encourage you to, uh, again, follow the link there, or you can email me and let us know the way in which we can pray for you. Our staff gathers together on Tuesday mornings. We have a, a prayer list that goes out to, to those who are committed to praying for you. There's an option if you want to be anonymous or just let the pastors know. But we do want to pray with you no matter who you are. Uh, we, we would love to, to have the opportunity to pray with you and for you. And speaking of prayer, now as we turn to the sermon, as we turn to listen to God's word, let us go to the Lord in prayer. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, you do graciously condescend yourself to, to where we are. You meet us. And so we ask that as you have time and time again, come now, be present within our hearts, wherever we may be in this moment, spread in different homes throughout the area, but yet nonetheless gathered together as one body, with one mind, with one purpose, and one spirit. Father, and that is to seek you, to become more like Jesus every day as faithful disciples. And so, Father, we ask that whatever distractions are on our mind, and there are a lot going on, as you know, uh, that you would push all of that aside, that you would help us to focus completely and totally on the words that you have to say. Whatever that is Samuel, you, we ask that you would just completely jettison that and that the peop your people would hear your word and a revelation of who you are and that that would sink deep within our hearts, transforming us to live out our lives in the places we live, work, and play for you and your name. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we continue our study, um, and as a reminder, we're following the Jesus Storybook Bible, and this one is called God to the Rescue, and it's uh, Exodus chapter 3 all the way through 13, so we're going to be covering a lot, but basically that section is going to be covering um, Moses uh, and the beginning of Moses and, and his interaction with God all the way up until the parting of the Red Sea. If you were with us last Sunday, uh, you remember Pastor Tommy uh, shared about Joseph, and that was really setting the stage. They all, uh, Joseph's family at the end of the sermon last time, all moved down to Egypt. If you remember, there was a great famine and so on and so forth, and so Joseph's family eventually ends up down in Egypt, and they are prospering, and they are doing extremely well. Joseph was um, maybe second in command to Pharaoh himself, and so his family was situated to do very, very well. And so they settle there in the land of Egypt, and we now turn into the book of Exodus, and, and right off the bat we see this in Exodus chapter 1, verse 7. The people of Israel were fruitful. And they increased greatly, and they multiplied and grew exceedingly, exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Later in Exodus chapter 12, verse 40, we, we find out um, at the end of this whole saga that we're about to go through that the Israelites have been in Egypt for over 400 years. So you've had generation after generation after generation prospering and multiplying, and what the scripture tells us in Egypt is that we've um, all of a sudden, or not all of a sudden, but over time, we eventually have a king or a pharaoh who does not know or does not um, trust the people of Israel 
the same way that that Pharaoh did way back in the day when they initially came down. And so, in other words, they begin to do so well, and they begin to multiply so much, and they are still a minority in the culture of Egypt, that the people who are in power, the people who are in charge, begin to think that this is a threat to them and their authority and their own power. And so the new king of Egypt, who comes to power around this time, decides to begin a process of um, enslaving, for lack of a better word, the, Egypt, the, uh, the Hebrew people. Uh, so they started out very, very well, and then over time they eventually reach this state where they have taskmasters over them, they are enslaved, and actually this newest king of Egypt um, begins to carry out a program of genocide. Not only are the people oppressed by their, their slavery, but he begins to, to tell the, the midwives that if, that if a Hebrew child is born and it is a male, to kill the child. Um, but that if it is a female, to allow the child to live. And, and the, the idea and the concept of, of lineage being passed down through the, the male line is to eliminate the Hebrews from the culture, or to uh, at least fold them in so that they don't have a distinct identity anymore. This is unfortunately not the last time you see this happen to the people of Israel. And so in chapter 2, this is the situation that Moses is born to. And you know the story of Moses. Moses is born as one of those those young boys who was going to be killed. Instead, he he is saved by his mother, and he ends up in Pharaoh's household He grows up in the royal household itself. And at some point, he sees um, an Egyptian taskmaster, an Egyptian, mistreating one of the Hebrews. And anger wells up within Moses, and Moses kills the Egyptian. And so he's forced to flee because of his actions. He hears other people talking about it, so he knows the word is out of what he has done. And he runs for his life off to kind of the outskirts of the Egyptian territory to a place called Midian. It'd be like if I today ran away and went down to Tacoma. So he's run away off to this this offshoot, this off area away, and he's hiding there. And right before chapter 3, the very very end of uh, Exodus chapter 2 says this. Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. So that most recent king that was implementing all these measures died. So there's a new king. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. And they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So we see actually this this interesting thing that's going on. Moses has fled Egypt. He has left the people of Hebrew. He's gone out to see his uncle Jethro in the land of Tacoma. And he is hiding out over there, doing whatever he can to forget the plight of the Hebrews, to forget the oppression that his people are undergoing. And then we read here that God specifically is remembering and has committed himself to 
seeing and knowing their plight. So you have Moses over here trying to forget, God trying to remember or remembering, and then there's this intersection of these two beings. And that is, of course, where the burning bush episode takes place. And, and again, we have a lot to cover. I just, this is crucially important because we see here in Exodus chapter 3, and I'm going to read to you verses 13 through 15, a new stage of revelation about who God is. God becomes more involved, more revealed at this moment in a way that he has not up until this point. If you remember back when I was preaching about Abraham, um, one of the things that was extraordinary about Abraham is that he believed in God without knowing who this voice was, that God had no introduction. God didn't even tell him his name. Here is the moment in Exodus chapter 3 where God reveals his name. Exodus chapter 3 verses 13 through 15. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent to me and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. I know we all know this, but as a reminder, names were particularly significant in the ancient Near East. Nowadays, um, there are some people, and I, maybe there's a resurgence of it, I'm not sure, but there are some people who name their children for a specific reason, that there is meaning behind the name. But there are also a lot of people that just name for whatever reason. Maybe it's because of heritage. Maybe it's because you like the way that name sounds. It's interesting if you track baby names, you can see the names uh, growing in popularity and dropping in popularity. And it's funny because you think, oh, I'm naming my child this unique name. And then you find out that everyone in your generation has named their child Sophia. Um, I once heard, heard this, this story that... Um, this woman was going through the grocery line and the grocer said, oh, what a, what a cute child. What is your child's name? And he said, oh, her name is Famale. And he said, oh, Famale, that's a wonderful name. Uh, why did you name your child that? And she said, oh, that was the name that was on the tag, uh, female, uh, pronounced Famale, when I, when I got her. That's just a joke. Uh, names in the ancient Near East had a very specific meaning, and, and we see that in Scripture, right? We've already seen it a number of times where Abram becomes Abraham, and his name is changed to mean father of a multitude. Sarai is becomes Sarah. Jacob becomes Israel. And so for God to reveal his name, and in, in the um, ancient Near East, in the other religions of the time, knowing the name of something gave you power over it, spiritually speaking, theologically speaking. And so for God to reveal his name, I am, Yahweh, was an incredible moment of self-disclosure and revelation 
about who he is and, and basically what's going on. And, and we could spend our entire time honestly talking about the name I am or Yahweh. But when he reveals himself to be I am, he is opening up himself, his very identity, his very nature to humanity. This is a monumental moment where the God of the universe, the God who created all things, shows us deeply who he is. And the intention behind this is to say, this is who I am and I am with you. In other words, be encouraged, be strengthened. If you remember, Moses was very hesitant to become God's mouthpiece. He didn't want to be involved with this. He reminds me a lot of myself. He didn't want to speak. And yet God is telling him, I am with you. This is who I am. I am revealing my nature to you. And you can take that and you can count on it. And not only am I, I am revealing you my actual name, but I am also the God of Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac. Excuse me, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that will be my name forever. This is a monumental moment. And the acts of Exodus, the things that we are about to talk about, not only today, but as we go forward in the book of Exodus, constitute the central act of redemption in the Old Testament. The same way as, as, the same way as in the way that the cross is the central act of redemption in the New Testament. That's how important this moment is, and it's signified by God revealing himself. So right after this, what happens next? Of course, we all know the story. We've seen Charlton Heston. We've seen the movies, um, the more recent movies as well, Prince of Egypt and things like that. But they, we go through a series of plagues in which God proves who he is. And one of the questions we ask is, what is, what is actually going on with these plagues? Why, what is the purpose behind them? And there's a number of interpretations, um, and I'm going to give you just kind of three big, big ones, big overall thematic things to consider. One thing that is going on is that this is setting a stage for I am versus the gods of Egypt. This is foundational for this moment in which the people of Israel are experiencing this, but this becomes foundational as they go forward, remembering that the land of Canaan, the land of Israel, is surrounded by polytheistic nations that are primarily worshiping gods that are associated with creation. And so in the moment, and then also forever more going on with, uh, with Israel as they are in this religious climate, this is a moment where God shows himself to be above and beyond the gods of Egypt. Exodus chapter 12, verse 12 says this, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. I'm getting ahead of myself. It's talking about the final plague. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. He's, part of the reason that he's doing this is to execute judgment upon these false gods. Exodus 18, 8 through 11. Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. So Moses is talking to Jethro. All the hardship that has come upon them and how the Lord delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel in that he had delivered them out of the hands of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord 
who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hands of the Egyptians, now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. This is a moment where God shows himself to be capital G God over and against all the lowercase g's. And by the way, this is a theme that goes on throughout scripture. You see it with Baal. You see it in the New Testament where the the rallying cry of the early Christian movement is that Jesus is Lord rather than Caesar is Lord. This constant contradistinction between reality and truth and falsehood and false gods. And especially when you start to look at the plagues that happen, I think it's a little bit of a stretch, as, as some, some people have tried to do, to assign a specific Egyptian god to each plague. But the plagues are affecting the very foundation of the Egyptian culture. The very first plague that happens is to turn the Nile into, the blood, into blood. And the Nile was the life source of the Egyptian society, of the Egyptian culture. And so naturally, it was worshipped. And Isis, one of the primary gods of Egypt, was the goddess of the Nile. There's the plague of the frogs. And there's actually a goddess named, I'm going to butcher all of these names, but Heket um, was the goddess of birth. And her face or her head was the head of a frog. There were, there's the plague of the gnats. There's a god who is the god of the desert storms. There is another god in the Egyptian theology that was possibly represented by a fly. There were gods of Hathor and Apis. Hathor had the head of a bull. Of a, of a cow, and Hathor had the head of a bull. And we think about the plague that affected the livestock. Um, there was Osiris, who was the god of crops and fertility. So as you see hail fall, and as you see um, the locusts come, you realize that Osiris has no power whatsoever over I am. Then, of course, uh, the culmination here at the end is, is the plague with the darkness. And I think almost everyone knows just from watching movies and things like that, that the, the king of the Egyptian gods was Ra or Re, and that Ra was, of course, the sun god. And so to see that even Ra is unable to stop I am is significant. And then the final plague, which we're going to hit more in just a little bit, um, is that the firstborn son of Pharaoh is killed. And remembering that in Egyptian theology and in other theologies of the time, that the king or the pharaoh was actually a god or considered a god there on earth. And so his firstborn son would be a god as well. None of these gods can stand up to the power and the might of I am. Another theme that we see here, and I'm, I'm trying not to get carried away, friends, and this is very, very good stuff here, but I'm just sharing three of them with you. This, the, another one that's very, seems clear to me is, is there's this connection between this moment and creation. And the acts that take place here, the, the plagues can be seen as God unraveling the acts that he did during creation. And so very to, to start off, to initiate the plague of blood, we are told that Aaron is to take his staff and hold it over all of Egypt's bodies or gatherings of water. 
And that word, gatherings of water, is the exact same Hebrew word that is used in the very opening of Genesis. Um, And if you've missed any of those other sermons, go back and listen to those. It all ties together. But in Genesis 1, um, chapter 1, verse 10, God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together were called the seas. And God saw that it was good. So immediately you have this literary connection between the gatherings of the waters um, from which God separated out of chaos and created order all the way to this moment of redemption is being tied back to creation. And, in, and instead of, of it being a, a moment of order in which the gatherings of water are used and collected and used in a positive way, they, those actual gatherings of water are turned into blood. I'm not going to belabor the point, but the frogs are associated with water. The lice are associated with the earth. The flies are associated with the air. All the realms of creation are being undone or affected. And of course, it ends there with the reversing of light and dark, the very natural order that God put into place during creation. And finally, the very final plague with the very unmaking of man through the death of the firstborns. So what am I saying with all of this? Whichever kind of view you're thinking, there's enough evidence here biblically in the scripture itself to tie creation to this moment. And basically the overall arching message is that God is the one that is in charge of the cosmic order. He is above and beyond all creation and all gods as well. Now, if we look at the actual literary structure, the way in which the verses play out, it helps drive home the point of what the overall purpose is. And and actually, I'm going to read some verses here where God tells us what the purposes are. But the the literary structure enforces it as well. And that is, you see, these three cycles of three. In other words, just by the way of the language and everything else, you can see that the plagues can be grouped into three. So you have The first three plagues, that's cycle number one. You have the second three plagues, that's cycle number two. And then you have the third plague, uh, the third cycle, which is cycle number three. And the the language is very clear. Each cycle, every, every third plague, begins with God giving Pharaoh an opportunity to repent before striking him. Then it continues with a warning to remember the preceding blow, and then and it makes a promise of, a, a, of an increase in devastation, and it culminates in the third cycle without a warning at all. So in cycle one, we see God's power in relation to his name. Remember I said how important it was that God has shared with us his name, I am, and how he has revealed himself. Cycle number one reveals, and I encourage you, go back. Um, if you've got children, read the Jesus Storybook Bible with them. Um, if, if you are not part of our kids' ministry, let us know. We, we dropped off, I know Miss Debbie dropped off supplies this month so that you can follow along with your kids. And if you're, you're an adult, I encourage you, read this section of the Bible. But cycle number one, God's power in relation to his name. Cycle number two is God's power in relation to the land of Egypt, as he explicitly states that the plagues are going to afflict only the Egyptians, that those who are his, um, the people of God who are dwelling in the land of Goshen, are not going to be affected. 
And then cycle three, you can see how this is escalating, right? Cycle three, God's power in relation to the whole earth and proclaiming that the earth and all of its fullness belongs to I am. And so that's three, 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 and it gets intensity, intensity, intensity. So you've got these patterns of three, and then there is one. So what would be the, the overall takeaway is that that last plague is the culmination, is the emphasis, is the central moment of God's rescue and this act of redemption. And that last one, you have three, 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 makes a number of 10. And 10 in the ancient Near East, in the Bible and in other cultures, was a sign of completeness. And it's a sign of completeness just based off of, um, in, in many scholars' opinion, our, our biology. If you look down at your fingers, how many do you have? You have 10 of them. So 10 represents that this was complete and total plague. That the nation of Egypt is completely and utterly ruined. And that that 10th plague, the final plague, which I'm going to pause and, and talk about just a little bit because it is the central plague to the story. And many of you know this story. And again, I encourage you, read your Bibles uh, if, if, you, if you need a, a refresher on it. But the last plague is the death of the firstborn son. And the celebration that is inaugurated at that moment is the Passover. And if you, if you don't remember, basically, that last plague is when God tells, tells Pharaoh that because you will not let my son Israel go, you will lose your son. And so the people of Israel are prepped for this. And Moses tells them, in order for the, the, the angel to, to pass over your homes, what you need to do is, is there's a number of things. The, the, the primary thing is to take a lamb, and specifically, it is an unblemished lamb, a lamb that is pure, that is whole, that is without defect. And to take the blood of that lamb and to sprinkle it over the doorway so that when this plague takes, takes place and the spirit passes through the land of Egypt, it will see the, see the blood or recognize the blood, and that will act as a substitutionary sacrifice, right? And we already saw this back with Isaac, this, this concept of substitutionary sacrifice, where one is, is placed instead of another. It's like, like in a game, uh, a sports game, where substitution, and you pull one out and you put another in. And in Isaac's case, uh, it was a ram caught in a thicket, and here it is a lamb, and the blood of the lamb is what is seen as a substitution. It's an imperfect substitution. Uh, <laughs> spoiler alert. But it is a substitution. And so the angel of the Lord passes over, hence the name Passover, passes over the homes where they are covered in the blood, and the other homes, the firstborn sons, die. And there's great wailing in the town. And this is what eventually breaks Pharaoh and permits them to begin their escape. 
So you see these parallels and these intensifying patterns that take place. And part of what's going on with each parallel and each pattern and ultimately culminating in the death of Pharaoh's son is that the, is that the author is keeping in front of us and is keeping in front of the hearer or the reader this, this concept that um, Pharaoh's heart has been hardened. And that there is this massive conflict between Pharaoh, who has been hardened and refuses to let go, no matter what happens, until the death of his own son. And you contrast that hardening of hearts with Yahweh, with I am, and his constant pursuit of his people. And there is, that is the foundation of what's going on here, is you have Pharaoh's hardened heart, versus the resolve and determination and the never-ending compassion of Yahweh on his people, on those whom he calls his son. Let me read a couple of the verses that just bring this out. Exodus chapter 10, verses 1 through 2. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants. Why? that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. God admits that he has hardened Pharaoh's heart in order to have this monumental moment in history to display his power to display his name, to display who he is, to the point at which Israel will remember it for generations to come, to the point to which we remember it today. It is that essential um, to, the, to the, the, the overall redemptive story. Exodus 9, 16, For this purpose I have raised you up, talking about Pharaoh, to show you my power, that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. And then Exodus chapter 4, verse 21 through 23. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you will say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So God tells us why this all happens. And the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is a great Presbyterian Reformed theological thing to talk about. But that's, that's, that's not the overall purpose or point here, as we've just read. Why does all this happen? This all happens so that Egypt will know that I am is God. So that the whole earth will know that I am God. So that Israel, God's firstborn son, he refers to them collectively as his firstborn son, will know that I am God. And so that God's firstborn son, Israel, no longer belongs to Egypt but belongs completely and wholly to God. Now, part of this is, is God claiming ownership over the people 
who are his. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 20 and verses 32 through 39 seals this this monumental moment and connects creation and this moment of redemption together. Verse 20 says, But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron, iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance, as you are this day. And then skipping down to verse 32. For ask now of the days that are past, which were before you. Since the day that God created man on earth, since the day of creation, and ask from one end of heaven to the other, whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself in the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, and by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is none other beside him. Out of heaven he lets you hear his voice that he might discipline you. And on earth he lets you see his great fire and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in, to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. The acts of Exodus constitute the central act of redemption in the Old Testament. The same way that the cross is the central act of redemption in the New Testament. And because of that, there is no wonder that there is all of these overlaps and connections between this central act of redemption in the Old Testament and creation, and Jesus and the acts that he does in the New Testament. In fact, this is one of the reasons that we believe that Jesus is who he says that he is. The way in which everything about him corresponds and fulfills the Old Testament. There are a plethora of ways in which we see Jesus and Moses' life being compared, both Moses and Jesus were saved from death when they were small children, while most of the other Israelite males at the time were being born, were being put to death by Pharaoh and later by Herod. Both Moses and Jesus were, as Matthew 2.13 says, called from Egypt. If you remember, um, Jesus and his parents flee to Egypt during that time. That is not a coincidence. Both Moses and Jesus both reject becoming rulers according to the world. Moses gives up his place in the royal household of Egypt. Jesus resists, resists the temptations of the tempter in the wilderness who offers him 
um, rule and reign without the path of suffering. Both Moses and Jesus mediate between Israel and God. Both Moses and Jesus intercede for Israel. Both Moses and Jesus give laws. If you weren't here, we went over the, the, um, the Sermon on the Mount series and made the connections between Mount Sinai and the Sermon on the Mount. Um, both Moses and Jesus were sent from a mountain of God to free Israel. Moses was sent from Mount Sinai to take the people out of ancient Israel, out of Egypt, and to lead them to Mount Sinai, and after that to lead them to the Promised Land. Jesus, who is the new Moses, is sent from heaven to take spiritual Israel out of spiritual Egypt to the heavenly mountain, the Mount Zion, which is mentioned in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, and to lead us into a heavenly promised land. Jesus not only compares to Moses, but Jesus demonstrates the same aspects of God in our story. Jesus demonstrates control over creation itself. Remember the story of Jesus as he calms the seas, calms the waters, that he has control and power over those things. And then probably most telling, connecting these two, is the moment in which Jesus calls himself, I am. This is in John chapter 8, verses 56 through 59. This is, for me, one of the clearest moments where Jesus proclaims his own divinity. Your father Abraham, this is Jesus speaking, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. He's talking to religious leaders. And so the Jews said to him, you're not 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? This is kind of like they're, boom, take that, Jesus. And Jesus said to them, remember all of the things I just said about the importance of God revealing his name. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, listen, listen, I say to you, before Abraham was, before Abraham existed, I am. And for anyone who thinks he was maybe saying something different, just read the next verse. So it's like, therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. And then finally, of course, Jesus is the first, is the firstborn son of God. Where Israel is called the firstborn of son of God, they fail God and they fail the covenant over and over and over again. Jesus is the true firstborn son of God. He is the Passover lamb. He is the, the lamb without blemish who never sinned. He is the lamb who lays down his life and by his blood we are redeemed, by his substitutionary sacrifice we are covered, and the, the, the uh, penalty which we deserve, death, becomes um, swallowed up and has no sting for us anymore. Now let me, let me conclude with this. Note, one, note, note this very important aspect. No one let the Israelites go. In other words, Moses keeps going, let my people go, let my people go, let my people go. Pharaoh never lets his people go. Pharaoh never, he, he has these moments where he like vacillates, but at the end of the day, he never lets God's people go. It was God, Yahweh, I am 
who brought them out of Egypt by his fear-inspiring acts of judgment. And we are told this over and over again in the, in the words themselves and in the literary pattern that um, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. There are 16 references to Pharaoh's heart being hardened in chapter 7 alone. And here's the turn, friends. The same is true for you and I. that our hearts are just as hard and unmovable. Romans 5, verse 10 through 11 says this, while we were enemies, we were enemies completely opposed. The same way in which Pharaoh and his government and his culture and his society and his gods position themselves in war, in complete conflict against God. Scripture tells us in Romans that we too were enemies and that we, not because of anything that we did, not because our hearts, we softened them or because we repented or because we had a turn in heart ourselves, we were reconciled to God. Why? By the death of his son, and much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And then verse 11, more than that, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. God graciously condescended himself to save Israel. They did not save themselves. God graciously condescends himself through his true firstborn son Jesus and though we are enemies of God we are invited to join his family to be part of his covenant people those to through whom which he will go to lengths which we cannot imagine to call us his to call us home he rips out our stubborn, hardened hearts, and he gives us hearts of flesh. And so we gather this morning, we gather every, every time to proclaim his name, and we go forward from here to point others to a gracious God that condescends himself to our level and calls us into relationship with him. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would act in our stubborn hearts. You know the areas that we refuse to surrender to you. You know the areas in which we are awaiting for you to begin to turn and act. Some of us who are listening may not yet have put our trust in you, and we ask that now you would, that you would call those people home, that you would call them to be part of your family, that you would call them to be part of this great chain of being in which we are your people, not through anything that we've done, but through what you have done. Father, we praise you and we give you glory in Jesus' name. Amen. At this point in the service is, is usually where we would call for the offering and is the way in which we continue to support our, our ministry and our missions. And we thank you for your faithful givings and the ways in which you can continue to support us during this time and as the ways in which we can continue to act as a faithful body here um, in our community as well. And so the link for that and the ways to give 
is in the comments um, and, and is in the description down below. Um, as we, as we kind of wrapping up our time here, one of the things we do is we profess our faith together, and our profession of faith today comes from the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 10, section 1, and it's on effectual calling, the way in which we are called into God's family. And I encourage you to, if you're a, one of the home groups or if you were your family at home, say this together. At the right time, appointed by him, God effectually calls all those and only those whom he has predestined to life. He calls them by his word and spirit out of their natural state of sin and death into grace and salvation through Jesus Christ. He enlightens their minds spiritually with a saving understanding of the things of God. He takes away their heart of stone and gives them a heart of flesh. He renews their wills and by his almighty power leads them to what is good. And so he effectually draws them to Jesus Christ. But they come to Jesus voluntarily, having been made willing by God's grace. As we conclude this time together, let me just read you the last part from the Storybook Bible, this section in chapter, I think it's on page 90, if you have the same version I do. And so that very night, Moses and God's people fled out of Egypt and out of slavery. They were free at last. God's people would always remember this great rescue and call it Passover. But an even greater rescue was coming. Many years later, God was going to do it again. He was going to come down once more to rescue his people. But this time, God was going to set them free forever and ever. May you go forward from here knowing the blessing of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. And I'll see you next week.